Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. Our guest on today's show is Eddie Jordan, the former boss and founder of the Jordan Formula One team, the racing pundit and all-round legend of the sport. Eddie is a true character in this largest of larger-than-life sports and the playful underdog who very often beats the big boys. In a fascinating episode, Eddie and I spoke about how he almost became a dentist as a young man, about the Wild West days of Formula One in the early 90s, about working closely with Bernie Eccleston, about his very unique style of deal-making and about how he has calculated that he's probably the luckiest man in the world. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. How are you, Eddie? I can't imagine you're someone who, who's naturally inclined to be cooped up all day. Have you found it difficult being locked down? Well, um, I did find it initially difficult, but, uh, you know, I, I bowed to other pressures and I started to read some books. Um, I tried to get into some of those video Netflix things, but I couldn't be, couldn't be coping with that. Um, um, different series. Yeah, there was a couple, The Hoist I liked, and I liked um, Succession or a bit of it. But, you know, I'm not a TV person. I, I need to keep myself entertained rather than just watch TV. Uh, TV for me uh, revolves around football and um, not much else, maybe a little bit of motor racing, but nothing else. Fine. So when you said some, some good things have come out of it, what have been the unexpected perks of, of being locked down? Well... I think like most people, I'm married 42 years to the same girl. And I thought, you know, in many, many relationships that this uh, three-month lockdown with one person cooked up in the same place would have uh, positives and negatives in terms of relationships and uh, how they would come out of this. And in particular, in my case, you know, I I couldn't believe how easy it was. Uh, My wife is very placid and she's very uh, calm, um, completely different to me. So we are completely poles apart. So to be able to adapt, I'm sure it was much tougher for her. I'd like you to ask that same question to her. I'm sure she'd have a different answer to me. (laughs) Where are you right now? You look quite tanned. Are you somewhere? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I go on my bike every day. So I'm out and about um, very seldom. Um, am I sitting around? So um, I either do I do Pilates at ten o'clock, and I go cycling at about half past seven. Um, and I really push myself hard. I'm in Spain at the moment. Um, I wasn't. I had the lockdown in Cape Town, which was actually really quite pleasant because we wow. got the end of the summer. Um, but the lockdown there was very severe, much more severe than most countries in Europe. And um, you know, when they said you're not allowed out, that 
actually meant you're not allowed out. I can imagine. Well, I want to ask you to start with one of the big kind of cosmic questions, because I've heard you say a few times before that you think you're one of the luckiest men in the world and your career has been luckier than most. Do you think that's true? Do you think that you've had some some big breaks? But, but there's no question about it. I mean, I would actually go so far as to say I am not aware of anyone who has been luckier than me um, uh, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, some people might focus on career. Some people might focus on health. Some people might think about family. Some other people may think about just general other things. And I said, when I can combine them all, um, you know, I got dealt a very, very good set of cards in my hand. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, I mean, if we go back to the start of your career, obviously you're, you're best known for all your motorsport endeavours, but you were almost a dentist. Is that true? Well, you know, in Ireland, um, it started off, um, first of all, the great thing about Ireland, I will say, is that it had two huge uh, complementary factors about it. And one was the, the education was huge um, and, and hugely successful, and also the health. Um, by that, I mean um, we gave huge platforms for which our teachers could operate from. And the headmaster in any school was considered to be alongside uh, the, the surgeon or the, uh, the head of police or, or um, the, 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 the bishop or the archbishop or whatever it is. You know, he was, he was in that circle of, of four or five really, really important people in the community. And I fear that, you know, in my life, certainly when I came to England and then further abroad, there's not many school teachers that I come across of. And th that's a pity because I think we need to embrace them and I think they need to see more about us and we need to see more about them. And um, so as they can be in touch with the children or my children and my children's children and vice versa. I just feel education and um, we mustn't let it get away from us. We have to make sure that we are there and we are assisting and we're helping but then for the teachers to be able to understand what is going on at home and various other things. Yeah. And so therefore the answer to that was, you know, I had a good education and I had a choice of going to dentistry. Uh, my father's two brothers were, were dentists and, and stuff like that. So it was a natural thing. It was either that or be a priest. And I didn't fancy being a priest at that stage. <laughs> uh, I'd found, I'd found young girls and, you know, I was away with the, with the lunatics. And, um, so, um, yeah, dentistry it was a very short-lived thing. And then I realized that, you know, I needed to make money. I, I, I could have joined the bank and do the Institute of Bankers. And I could also do cost and management accountancy at the same time because I could do it at night if I put the winter time into studying at night time, which I, I had agreed to do. So I had all the summer off and then I started carting and, and that's really how it happened. I wouldn't have been able to have a cart and I wouldn't have been able to use that money to do the things um, when in my late teens or very early 20s um, had I not because there was no family money or certainly there was no money that, that my family were ever going to consider uh, a, a motor racing career because it just wasn't one in Ireland and it just was it, it was something that other people did in England and on the continent in Europe and various other places in South America uh, motor racing was not a part um, of Irish culture no and were you a natural deal maker back then? People often describe you as um, as a hustler. Do you, do you think that's a fair tag? I think that's actually very, very, uh, 
very gentle. It's quite complimentary, isn't it? I was worse than that. I was a villain. I mean, villain in, in the nice sense. By that, I mean, uh, you know, the, the law was one thing and you wanted to stay within the law. But, I mean, I would do anything. I mean, I would do anything to make money. And um, all sorts of confrontation with the various banks that I was in because I used to have a, a kind of in the, in the bank car park. I maybe have three or four cars that were ready for sale and I was looking after the car loan section. So I would obviously try and encourage somebody who was buying a car to consider buying it this way, which would be cheaper rather than going to the, the garage next door. So um, the bank managers got a bit tired of me and they got a bit grumpy with me with parking my car in their slots and vice versa, particularly when there were better cars than theirs. So <laughs> it sort of had a knock-on effect. It was They loved it in certain ways and they hated it in others. Yeah. When you're going into a situation like that, when you're when you're trying to hustle and there's a bit of confrontation, are you ever daunted, or do you do you kind of look forward to that that little? Bit? I, if I don't have even to this day, and I'm in my seventies now, if I don't have my daily skirmish with aggravation, I feel deprived, and I always have to have that. So confrontation, um, having a little rock with somebody. Um, generally, the kids know when I haven't had a rook and they just avoid me because, you know, they know they're next, <laughs> so to speak. But I have to, and I, I say ridiculous things in the hope of getting, you know, a reaction. And I know within the kids who reacts best or most in certain, you know, who won't tolerate uh, some of the things I say. So it's quite easy to get a reaction. Are you naturally a confident person, do you think? I wasn't. Um, uh, I probably am now, but then that's because certain things happen and you sort of learn to understand and maybe this is an easier way to go about it. And confidence is something that you have to acquire and it's not something generally that I think you're born with. I think it's something that you understand, you grow, you learn, um, you find uh, like uh, foundations and building blocks to make sure that uh, psychologically that you, you feel equal to somebody else psychologically you feel you can compete against somebody else uh, or any given set of circumstances but i think again living in ireland we we, we were brought up uh, in a situation it wasn't long after the the second world war um we'd had maybe 600 years of british occupation of ireland and as a result um we always looked to england as being, you know, they were the masters and they understood and they had the authority. And if somebody had an English accent, you automatically, uh, seems bizarre now to say this, but you automatically assume that they were better than you. Um, and I'm not sure where that came from, but that was just a fact of life. You know, as things progressed and, and Irish people became better educated and they became better um, students of the world and, and be able to be a significant part of culture going forward, uh, both in the music area and theatre, just to, in business elements and the people who have uh, acquired unbelievably successful jobs, um, that's indicative. But I think if you were to ask each and every one of those people, how was it to start? I think it comes from the schooling. And it was just that, you know, we look to England for the rugby, we look to England for the soccer, we look to England for the, the tone and the action and various other things. We certainly look to England for the music. We found our own music and we found our own culture very soon after that. And, of course, um, we don't need to talk about bands or rock and roll or different things. But um, I, I think it's, it's been a gradual process, but I think we are now a confident, much more confident than we ever were. It's interesting you say that there wasn't 
much of a culture when you were growing up of Irish motorsport. How did you then find your way into that world? Well, there was little or none because um, it only became, there was one circuit and that just got built um, when I started to uh, start karting and uh, that was Mondello. And there was a huge group of drivers that all of us seemed to come and converge at the similar times. People like David Kennedy, um, Michael Rowe, Bernard Devaney, um, uh, Derek Daly, of course, and, and several other. We had John Watson, who had gone on to be a driver within Marlborough, and he won six Grand Prix, I think. And so we have had successful people. But I was fortunate because um, my uncle, um, the dentist guy, um, he won the Irish Rally Championship in a mini um, alongside, if you remember, Paddy Hopkirk, who went on famously to win the Monte Carlo Rally. So rallying was quite popular because you could close the road. You didn't have the bureaucracy of saying, you know, you just tell the local police station that this, you need this road uh, sectioned off and make sure that you have a race there at the weekend. Uh, I mean, it was as easy as that. This business of planning permission weeks and months beforehand I didn't apply to those days. You just did within reason, and you were providing you were fair and reasonable with the police. They would just uh, make sure that you know here were a bunch of guys having fun. Let's see if we can help them. That was their attitude. And how good were you as a as a driver? What do you rate yourself out of ten now, looking back? Well, it's gradually got lower, hasn't it? You know, at the time I thought I was a good nine, and then I realised that you know uh, at that stage I got lucky. I won a um, uh, former Atlantic Championship, which was uh, alongside, you know, at that stage it was the Keki Rosbergs and uh, and Alan Jones. We were all doing Atlantic together. Uh, I won that championship, and as a result, I got hired by Marlborough. That was the biggest uh, piece of luck of my entire life um, because I got taken. They gave me enough money, barely, um, to pay for a life that I could live in digs in England, um, doing Formula Three. Uh, inside a Marlborough team and the, the really top guys in that team who were doing Formula One was Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, uh, Alan Prost was to join uh, and uh, Emerson Fittipaldi. So, the, you know, the great thing is that very often when you're in a team of such outrageously brilliant stars at the business that you're in, um, a lot of it rubs off on you and you become that little bit more. In their company, probably not as confident as you should be, but when you were out doing the races for them, we say in Australia or New Zealand or wherever it was, you had that little swagger because you yeah. had been picked by this team. And, um, you know, I have a lot to be grateful for for those guys because I learned a lot of the marketing ideas from people like James Hunt, who was an absolute wizard. And he and I were responsible for a British brand, a part of the Marlborough group called Raffles. So that was us. He and I did that. And promoted that that was our job within when we weren't racing uh, but it was Nicky Lauda possibly was had the most influence on me even to this day because it was he who came to me and he said look Eddie James me Emerson Fittipaldi and of course we Prost hadn't been world champion at that stage but he was about to be and uh, he said to me Eddie look you're a good guy but you've got a very good knowledge of financial aspects and commercially you seem to be right there and better than any of us um would you not consider running a team because you know time is running out for you um i mean i was 30 at this stage i got married and i had a baby uh, or maybe two babies and marie and i we we left ireland to go to live in the uk so nikki was the one who pushed me and funny enough it was james hunt's brother david um who was probably one of the first drivers i had and then 
it kicked kicked off from that because other people kept coming to me and saying, look, you need to see this driver. You need to have a look at this. And and that's how a year later, the great Ayrton Senna came to us in 1982 at Silverstone. He did that test. But um, we had won some races prior to that. And I had that ability. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to see because I was a driver for such a long time, but never actually scaling the highest level, I was able to see what that little piece was was missing that other people would have. And I, that, that for sure uh, was easy to see uh, in, in Senna. Um, the next year I had Brundle was also brilliant. Um, then uh, 85, Damon Hill, I gave him his first chance in Formula 3. And so it, it went on like that. There was a bit of a roller coaster. Once I got it going, um, financially it was a struggle. But, you know, those little struggles, I never even thought about them because I felt confident that I could overcome or talk my way out of uh, financial issues because I had that training. I was now, uh, obviously, uh, with the Institute of Bankers and, and the Cost and Management Accountancy behind me, um, that I had that knowledge that I felt that I could take on a financial discussion with anybody. When you mention all those people, those some of the biggest names in the history of any sport, yeah. let alone motorsport, was there a kind of common denominator between Nicky Lauder and James Hunt and, and Ayrton Senna and Alan Prost? Is there something that they all had in common that, that maybe you didn't have and that, that you've been looking for in other people since? Well, actually, um, there was one aspect that I did have alongside them and that we absolutely adored girls. And, um, <laughs> right. you know, I promise you, it, it was it was a war zone between and Most people think that James Hunt it just was such a killer with the girls. But in actual fact, Nikki was the one, and Prost, oh my God. Look, I'm not even getting involved in this discussion, but I'll also <laughs> say that uh, motor racing took very much a secondary part in all of this. Um, right. But when they put the helmets on, my God, they were just supreme. Uh, yeah. Wonderful athletes, very serious about what they did. Um, but James, you know, James smoked, he drank, he had lots of girlfriends, and he was always out walking the dog. It's the most unbelievable champion that I can recall. And then I think about Nikki and Everything with Nicky was very short. You know, he didn't suffer fools easily. And um, his replies were very short. Any things I've done with him on television, uh, so clever, the insight. Uh, I think he had, I uh, was one of the most dynamic people I've ever met. Yeah. Were, were they fearless as well? Well, I think they egged each other on. You know, a lot of people think and saw the, uh, I was involved in some of the scripting of, of, of that movie, Rush. Yeah. And um, people think that, you know, that uh, I don't think they played the Nikki part truthfully. I mean, not truthfully. I'm sure they went out of their way to do it correctly. Um, but, you know, having been a teammate and living alongside Nikki for such a time, that's not really the Nikki that I remember. Um, he, he was crazy. Um, and I'm not sure, sadly, we were at his funeral last year. But, you know, he, he had a number of children. Um, he had twins, only a couple of years before he died. Uh, and, and so he, he was a prolific man in all sorts of different ways. I suppose um, maybe we learned from our leader, Bernie Eccleston, who just we'd like to congratulate him for the birth of his little baby last week. And um, at, at, at 90 something, oh, maybe not 90, he'd probably kill me for saying that, but um, he's 89. And um, so we had a great teacher in, in Bernie in many, many different respects. Of course. Well, well, we'll move on from that. But it seems like you had um, a knack for spotting talent. You could see 
people for what they might be if they just had a little bit more training. Yes, I think that is fair to say. And um, But I was also slightly different. I, because of the financial advantage that maybe I had, um, I was prepared to take on drivers who had no money and I would go out and find it for them. Or I wanted the best driver in my car. So we talked about the Damon Hill. Then the year after, we won a championship with Johnny Herbert and he was a supreme talent. Mm. Um, sadly, he broke both his legs in our car after winning a championship. And then that following year, Jean Alessi, who had been let go uh, by his team in France, and I took him on and we won the championship with him. So he was also a huge influence on me because he was unruly. He was French. He was terribly arrogant. He, oh, he crashed the car all the time and just walked away from it as if, you know, I, and I had to really be nasty to him. And I said, you realize how many hours and how many people are going to have to be there all night to fix this car for you, you idiot. So I insisted that he leave his home, the comfort of his home in Avignon to come and live in Oxford with me and bring him to the factory every day and get him to do little chores and stuff just to make him realize what actually goes on to make the car as good as he can. And he learned very quickly. And um, then I got him a drive very quickly at the French Grand Prix for Tyrrell, and he finished fourth, which was unbelievable for a driver in his first Grand Prix, never having driven that car before. And Ken, of course, wanted to sign him. I wouldn't let him do that until he'd won the championship with me. But he was the guy who said to me, Eddie, you really must believe me when I say, I, I've now driven for Tyrrell. I see what a, a, a good uh, mid-range Formula One team can do. There is absolutely no doubt you've got to do Formula One because you can do the same. And he sowed that little seed in my uh, and it sort of gelled and I kept thinking about it and I'm saying, but the finances, I'm not sure I can actually pull this one off. This is a step too far. This is, uh, you know, in the realms of dreaming about things. Let's be pragmatic and let's be sensible of making money with Formula 3 or making money with Formula 3000. I have all these drivers under management. They're away in, in Japan earning money from me. So I'm beginning to earn some proper money at this stage. So why blow it all away on a whim um, or trying to achieve something that historically um, now major institutions and, and major conglomerates were coming into the sport as major sponsors and various things? Uh, how was I going to do it as a Joe Bloggs and, um, or, or me on my own? And because I wasn't really, I wasn't attractive enough to the outside world for them to come and join me as a, a co-investor, so to speak. Um, so we decided to do it ourselves. So uh, Marie, my wife, and I, we just buckled down to it. I asked her, and I will remember for the day I, I die, she said to, I said to her, Marie, should we be doing this? She said, well, you're never going to be happy unless you do it. And, if, and I said, well, what happens if it fails? Well, she said, it can't get any worse than where we were. So let's go for it. And that is exactly what happened. It, it seems insane now, looking back, that, that basically an individual – could could step into that sport and that that bear pit in a way. Did it seem like you were completely in the deep end straight away or not? You know, I didn't let my mind go into that kind of uh, thought process. Yeah. All I could think about was sponsors. Um, I'd won a championship with Camel, but then Camel left me at the very last moment to go with Briatore and Benetton. So I felt as if I was absolutely shafted. Um, but out of the blue... You know, again, this is where I say I was lucky. Uh, during the, the, the Christmas before, uh, I used to do these speeches at that stage for free. And I remember doing a thing for Pepsi-Cola um, to 600 delegates uh, in London. Um, 
uh, opposite the Ritz, well, it was the Ritz-Carlton. And um, I spoke about my history and what I'd done and all sorts of things that I was dreaming about doing and now I was going into Formula One. And um, I remember Paul Adams, who was the managing director at that time, he then went to BAT, so we had a lot in common with each other. Um, and, and, and Paul told the delegates that, thank you very much, Eddie Jordan, we wish you the very best of luck. As you know, um, we are committed to our total sponsorship, guys. We need everyone to get behind Michael Jackson. We got Michael Jackson's worldwide tour for the next two years. And within a couple of weeks, Michael Jackson had too much lacquer in his hair. It caught fire on a candle when he was eating, burnt his hair, cancelled the concert. And, and, and Paul Adams came screaming at me, could I do a Pepsi-Cola sponsorship? That's how easy, that's how ridiculous this is. And um, I said, well, look, I'd prefer, I'd prefer because of the green uh, and because the number one drink uh, in Ireland was 7-Up. And um, I said, is there any chance we could do 7-Up? And then we created Fido Dido. And... Um, that green car brought Fuji and it also brought the Irish government in. Mm. So I was always a hustler. That's, that's where I think I was uh, well suited to this. So hustling yeah. from one to the other. And, and um, I, I used to go to sponsors and tell them, I, I, you know, I'd say to them straight, you know, you know, I'm going to rob you. You know, I'm going to take your money. You know, it's going to happen. So we, why don't we just make it easier for each other and not hurt each other? Just pay over. I mean, and they would just laugh at the, you know, the front of this kind of thing. But that's, mm. that was my modus of operandi. I, I used to say to the people, it's going to happen, so why don't we just go positive about it and let's get it done. I would go in and say to them very clearly, I can deliver you 10 times value, and I will demonstrate that to you. So if you spend uh, $2 million with me, I will give you $20 million's worth of value because between the TV, the media, the coverage and various things. And I had a couple of really proactive girls who were assisting me on the press side and they were just dynamic. And we did the biggest and the craziest scams of all time, you know, putting snakes on cars, having all, all, all the gorgeous girls on the grid. And, and, you know, I would, there was nothing that I didn't want to do, providing it was correct and legal and, and, and tasteful. Um, that Jordan would do, and we brought a different dynamic to Formula One, and I think that Jordan created a different image for itself. So from that point of view, um, you know, I used to tell the sponsors, guys, it, you are going to sponsor me. I have a good feeling about that, and I think you're going to have the most roller coaster successful time of it. So why don't we just cut to the chase and let's try and see how we can get the best compromise contract between each other that's fair to both sides, and that's how... You know, I would say it, and, and, and people used to think, well, wow, we haven't heard this kind of approach before, but that's how it worked. Jordan had a reputation, I suppose, then, as as being a kind of rock and roll team, that there was a sense of fun and playfulness, almost maybe that you weren't taking it as seriously as other people. I'm well, sure that's not true, but that was that was that the perception, at least? Well, not alone was it a perception, but it was what I was portraying. And I remember... Again, certain things in your life that stick in your mind you just can never forget. And I remember um, having a big fight at, at, uh, at Monza for the Italian Grand Prix um, between uh, McLaren and Ferrari and ourselves. Um, and I won, the, I won the race with a Mugen Honda. Now, it wasn't a factory engine, so it was a, a semi-supplier. And um, I remember Ron Dennis uh, coming to me. He says... You know, I don't understand you. You don't take this serious one little bit. He said, how can, if you just took it more serious, it would be far better. 
But what he didn't realize was I was ridiculously serious, but I had this facade. I had this character that needed to be played out. In other words, I was the Irish joker. I was Jack the lad in the hope that they wouldn't really take me too seriously because I was whipping their backsides um, in terms of um, getting under their skin, uh, getting their drivers, getting their sponsors. Um, and it was, a, it was a really wonderful game. And, you know, the thing about it is they never really quite twigged how serious we really were because the people I had working for me, I said, guys, we can afford to have one clown in this business, and that's, that can be me, and I will play the clown as well as I can. Um, um, but behind me, please do not be influenced by that because I need some steely determination, mm. more determination than anyone could ever even hope to think that we would have, and we're going to kick their butt. And that's what we tried to do, and that's what was successful for us. As much as it looked like fun, I'm sure... It must have been incredibly stressful, that scenario, coming into that world. Um, well, I've only ever been, and this is again talking about luck, isn't it? I've only ever been ill once, uh, and that was in 91. And people often talk about, you know, what's the levels of stress and what happens. Um, for me, stress can come from many different things, obviously domestic and home and financial and various other things, either earning capacity, children, where to go to school, all these things. In my case, um, financial stress, uh, I've never known anything like it. Um, it, it. It virtually killed me, and that happened in 1991. Um, I had made um, some good money re- uh, bringing into that, so I started from nothing. And uh, before I went into Formula One, I had um, uh, about $5 million, which got swallowed up in the design and the building of the car. Uh, we got sponsorship, as you said, from Fiji and... Um, uh, from Ireland and, and, and from 7up. So people automatically assumed that we were covered financially, but absolutely no way. And um, a number of things happened. Uh, a, I owed an awful lot of money, so I was on first-name terms with every bailiff in Northampton and Oxfordshire. They all knew me well. And in fact, they became such friends that they'd say to me, look, we have to call around at 2 o'clock on Friday. Please don't be there don't answer the door. So if they don't answer the door, they can't serve the writ. And that's exactly what had happened. It was quite a bizarre, I'm not sure that could happen nowadays, but it did happen in my time. Uh, Because people were beginning to really fall in love or they could see the love affair that could have been uh, possible or could have been available with um, a team that really shouldn't be there. Um, And yet here they were, you know, running at that stage, fifth in the championship, um, had just found a guy called Michael Schumacher uh, this was all 91, and, um, you know, we knew at an early stage, why try and keep him? I wanted to try and keep him. One part of me said keep him, and the other side, if I sell him, I can make some money, and we can probably get to the end of the season. And, and I remember Bernie Eccleston said, if you don't take the money, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop drip-feeding you, which is what he was doing. Um, right. But he was taking it out of next year's television income. So he was brutally honest with me. He said, Jordan, you will not survive. Just do what I say get rid of him, take the money, send him to Benetton. He is a great talent, but, you know, you're not ready to have him yet. And he was right, because what would I have done with Michael Schumacher, how great a guy he was in in 92, and me going off to get free engines from Yamaha, which sadly Yamaha weren't up to the mark at that time. But um, that was the way it is. We got free engines, which Bernie organized for me. And um, so there's more of the look emphasis coming through people did things for us 
because they felt that Jordan had a rightful space uh, in Formula One and where possible, um, the authorities, including Bernie, or at least it fed down from Bernie, um, that they were uh, probably very kind to us in many different ways. What do you like in a crisis? I can't imagine you lose your cool, but perhaps that's perhaps that's not true. Are you very relaxed in well, crisis? I have uh, many different facades in, in, a, in a crisis. It, generally, people, when there's a real crisis, they shut up and they do nothing and they just see uh, and analyze what is the best thing I can do here uh, and real drama. Uh, if, it's, if it's not a life and death situation or is a really, really critical situation, I mean, they're stirring the pot. I'm causing even more drama and more crises uh, as we go along because... Uh, you know, I like I like a level of aggravation, and and that gives me a, a wonderful platform where to, to get the aggravation factor out there. So I can't really answer you. It's twofold. It's it's uh, it's it's calmness at the highest level and a lesser level. Uh, I'm belligerent and nasty and noisy and confrontational them I, I honestly there's a whole list of things there that I, I have to say that sometimes I'm not entirely proud of myself or how I go about it okay in Formula One in the 90s seemed like much more of a wild west in a way there's stories of your cars being impounded in Belgium and, and you just sort of getting them out of the day of the race and Bernie Eccleston maybe negotiating to be paid in diamonds at one point I remember reading about what what, what was it like back then what are your memories of that time well, that's exactly right. I mean, Bernie was, um, you know, I'm one of his biggest fans, so maybe I'm biased. Um, but uh, he created from a total minority sport. Um, he created his worldwide phenomenon, really, which we now know as motor racing. And we know the value and the money that it brings to people. Um, and, and he's made it worldwide. He, he was the first to go into China and then, when he went to Australia, we thought he was mad. Um, I was given the job to coordinate the, the Chinese race. So he gave different people different um, things to do. So from, from the, the, that point of view, he was a great delegator. And I learned a lot from, uh, I consider myself a reasonable delegator. I think it's a very important thing is to give people their own head. Let them, if you really trust them, let them get on and make their own decisions and when they make a mistake, then they come back and they tell you, and we'll try and then fix it. Um, but he, he was—he he was two things. He was the best visionary that I've ever seen. Uh, he could see that we would have races in the in the Middle East, that we would acquire a huge amount of money from these people because they were desperate to have a major sporting events, and um, you know, to have the Abu Dhabi race in November is now considered one of the great races on the calendar for which the money that the, these people put into it, but also the razzmatazz, uh, the expertise in terms of the facilities that they put on, the parties that they put on, uh, just the whole extravagance, if you like, and the splendor alongside um, a really top-level world Formula One championship race. And uh, Bahrain have done the same. Absolutely amazing what they have done. So we go on through the world and, and you know, we're now, uh, hopefully next year we'll be at, in Vietnam mm-hmm. um, and Asia seems to be uh, a place where Europe can't afford or don't want to afford um, all, all of the, the money that these other countries can afford. 
we've we've spoken about some of the um the difficulties i suppose and the stresses but what were the great great moments in in jordan's history what were the great victories oh if you want to talk motor racing obviously winning the grand prix but you know for me the best time that i ever had and on, on total reflection i now have lots had lots of time to be able to uh, go back and recapture some of those moments and each and every time comes back to the 80s uh you know we talked about senna and then damon hill and then johnny herbert martin brundle um uh martin donnelly uh jean alessi all of those winning the championships i won lots and lots of races and i made some money and on reflection they were my carefree days that was for me absolute rock and roll uh in the truck in the van driving the thing myself if i had to um, and then probably getting slightly posher, so you stay in a hotel instead of in a caravan or a motorhome on the back of the thing. And um, But I enjoy that because I was me. I mean, I'm allowed to call myself a pikey, but I think you may not be able to call me a pikey these days uh, because it's it's not deemed to be correct, but I couldn't care less. And, um, so, you know, uh, I was rough and ready. I loved the fact of being able to go to the bar, go to the pub, after a really hard, sweaty day racing and have a beer with my team. That, for me, was one of the best things that I could ever do um, because I felt integrated and integrated with them. I felt that I was part of the bond and these people would have died for me. I would have died for them. Incredible. And you are you still friends with the, the majority of the people you work with to this day? Well, um, some um, have gone at my stage. Some of them have retired. Um, people who stick in my mind, of course, is, uh, are, are the girls, Giselle Davis, who was um, brilliant. And she, by the way, was the girl when she left me, she went to the IOC. And she, uh, if you ask Lord Coe, Sebastian Coe, he will tell you she, more than anyone else, was responsible for bringing the Olympics to Britain. And um, that would have been Barry Davis's daughter, the famous TV, was the first guy to do a match today. Uh, Louise Goodman, unbelievable. And a lot of these uh, brilliant people, uh, Fiona Cranfield was also an amazing girl. But the, the guy who, who was with me all that time uh, was Ian Phillips. And I needed him because he was on the commercial side. And um, so he, where I would be off the rails talking complete nonsense, he would always try and bring me back to where we needed to be. And I always had our best deals when I was with him. But having said that, I also had on the technical side um, another Irish guy called Gary Anderson, who I have continually and always said that beyond any doubt, um, there has never been in my my lifetime of motorsport, I've never come across a more practical, brilliant uh, pair of hands and head together in, in one human being. He was just dynamite. And um, he and two other guys, can you imagine when there's hundreds and hundreds of people now building the likes of the Mercedes car? Three people built the first Jordan car, yeah. and he was the main guy. And um, brilliant engineer, just I'm not sure we'll ever see the likes of him again. But anyway, Gary Ann. So I was very lucky. And, and what has happened at the time, we didn't want to pay for a lot of money for, for staff. So we went to all the universities, all the key universities. And we said to the professor, I'll come and make a talk to your marketing people. And Gary can come and talk to your engineering people. But what we want from return is not money. We want your top three best recommendations of your highest qualified young engineers coming through and we would like to give them positions uh, in Jordan Grand Prix. Now, most young engineers would absolutely love to come and work in a Formula One. So we wound up with 
three, four, five uh, interns, if you like, to start uh, at Jordan Grand Prix, and they turned out to be brilliant. And even today, if you look at the Formula One situation, a lot of those chief designers all started and cut their teeth uh, at Jordan Grand Prix. And I, I got a great feeling of satisfaction out of that because, one, I had the advantage of their ability uh, for very little money at the beginning, but I did give them the training. I did give them the, the thought process, and I did give them their head about how to, to, to get on and do it. They also had Gary Anderson to look over, and um, they became great people. And each of us, whenever we all meet up or whatever at a race, if there is a possibility to do that, they will readily admit that the situation was in the most pleasant time they had was in their youth when they came to Jordan, where they had more or less a free hand. What were you like as a boss? Do you, was it hard to juggle the, the, the more fun persona with a kind of disciplinarian edge, maybe? I never really had an overall problem on uh, disciplinarian would I be. Yes, I, was, I think everybody knew where the line was. And I had a bit of a philosophy, and I used to kind of terrorize to a degree the staff. So I had a policy that you couldn't work at Jordan Grand Prix unless you were interviewed by me first when you arrived, and you had to be interviewed by me on your departure. Um, and that gave me the best of what were. I used to keep the notes on which ones, and I wanted to see how people had improved, how they gained certain skill sets and various other things. And I also learned a lot about our team and the people and myself. And I used to be really ridiculous. I said, was I too tough? Was I too hard? And I said, look, I want honest answers. But I think that's what they got. And that's what they gave. It was the position. said, look, Eddie, I don't think you put enough into this, or I think you could have done that. But I think you were brilliant at that. And I think, and I'm not sure that they were blowing smoke at me or whatever. But um, the reality was that I felt that I was in touch with each person. I knew what their names was. I knew that some, you know, I'd make a, a policy because we were small enough. I'd know who had a family. I'd know what kids they were. And I had a little note as to when their birthday was. And we'd have a cake of the team or whatever it is. Just little, small, tiny little touches that would make the difference between working for somebody as distinct from working with somebody. And I wanted to make sure that they were working with me, not for me, and that we were all in this together and that no one person could ever, ever, driver or whoever, no one could ever be greater than the team. And that was a, a principle that we had from the day one. And, you know, sometimes people's egos got big, and he was a designer to this, and he was making a great job of that. But every now and again, you'd have to give somebody a little bit of a slap to get them down off that pedestal. Yeah, I bet. With all, with all that in mind, was it, was it very difficult to walk away from that and sell it? When you did in 2004? Well, it wasn't because it had run its its time. Um, uh, we'd won, set out to, to win Grand Prix. Uh, uh, truthfully, did I ever think we would? No, I didn't think. I, I, I didn't. Re- you know, I have a great uh, a word that I use continually, which is believe. Um, and I keep saying to everybody, don't just use the word believe unless it's 100% belief. And if you believe in something 100%, then it will happen. And I believed that Jordan would win Grand Prix. Uh, I think it was a foolhardy belief at the early stage, um, but it happened. And um, it's whatever you set yourself a target for. And if you commit yourself in every uh, fiber within your own body and your mind, and you are not just talking fanciful ideas, then you can achieve those beliefs. 
And that's what we did. And that's what I tried to put inside every person inside Jordan was belief in their own ability, the belief that no one could do the job, whether it was driving the truck or putting the suspension on the front of the car or doing the engine or whatever it is. It didn't matter who or what they were doing. Um, they had to believe that no one could do it better than them. And why at that moment? Why, when you say it had run its course, well, how did you know that? Um, the money dried up. Um, the tobacco industry was uh, was under serious uh, attack from various different governments um, uh, in terms of what they could spend, in terms of the publicity, in terms of the promotions that they were able to do. And, you know, we, we, we had Benson and Hedges for a long time, and that was the the yellow was hugely important to us. Mm. And as a result of the yellow, we got the Deutsche Post. And um, people often ask me, what's the best thing? You know, uh, we then had DHL. And um, you you mentioned it even there. What do you think was the most important thing, the best success we ever had? And it's nothing to do with motor racing as such. The most important thing that I think that I, as Eddie Jordan, never did was convincing the main board of Deutsche Post to change the color of DHL. At the time, it used to be white with red. And I told them that they were mad. They were asking me to launch this particular new brand that they bought mm-hmm. um, and, and on a world platform. And I said, you're asking me to take on somebody like FedEx, which is a leader in the market, and they're white with red. You're crazy. I mean, they weren't to know that I wasn't able to put the white on the car because Benson and Hedges wouldn't let me. So I had to convince them to put yellow on the car. So I went into their boardroom with an umbrella, uh, which was a yellow umbrella, and I was dressed up in the full Benson and Hedges uh, working clothes. And they kind of were a bit surprised with me. But I put the umbrella, I said, this is a time, guys, that you need to make a big decision. I cannot do for you what you want to do with a yellow car. And I showed them a whole lot of um, different uh, presentations. And in the presentation was a whole lot of vans. The first one was all white vans. And then the next page was all white vans, except one yellow van, which had DHL on it. I said, this is this is what you're going to get. But you've got to embrace it, and you've got to understand it, and you've got to incorporate it in your complete corporate philosophy. And um, they did. And uh, to my success, to my <laughs> disbelief, because I did not think that that could happen, that wow. I could convince the main um, supervisory board and the main board of Deutsche Post, which were part of uh, Lufthansa at the same time, Postbank, huge German group, fantastic company. But I convinced that board to change the whole logo and the color scheme. Uh, and now when I see every yellow DHL truck, driver, plane, whatever you see, I think 100% that was as a result of Jordan Grand Prix. So I'm very proud of that. That is my proudest moment. Wow. When I hear stories like that, I think, I wonder where you get your kind of adrenaline from now, where you get those moments of deal-making buzz, I suppose. Do you still get those those moments? Yeah, I scheme every day. I mean, if I don't have something to scheme about, I feel naked and uh, I feel I'm not achieving anything and uh, I can't stand still. Uh, I'm always first up, but I do go to bed early. Uh, by that, I'd be rarely in bed after 10. I, I do like to get up at 7 um, or before and go cycling or do whatever I need to do. Um, so I'm hugely active. Um, probably the old bones in the body is creaking a bit for sure now, but, um, you know, I am do like a drink, but it's all purely in moderation only because that I don't want to go over 68 kilos. I mean, that's 
I, I look after my body really well. What did you do the day after you sold Jordan in 2004 when you suddenly woke up and realized you weren't that man anymore in a way? Well, oh, it wasn't so much the day after. The day after, I couldn't believe it, and so I was counting the cash. Um, and I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do with this now? Um, which wasn't difficult with four kids. Um, it's easy. It's easy to work out, but, and there were certain bills to pay, you know. But don't. don't I mustn't uh, belittle. It was a magic touch, um, because I'd actually sold part of it beforehand and then bought it back. So there were a couple of deals and tricky deals that were just just played into my hands magically. And so I'd I'd made transfers and transactions with the team to other individuals prior to that, um, which meant that. I was able to buy it back and I had full control of it again. So um, when it was sold, um, I can't remember, the, I, but I do remember the first race. Um, the first race was in, in Australia. And cleverly, my Irish wife, she probably knows me better than most. And she knew I would be, uh, it could be a problem as to, you know, all these years and everything that we'd spent was in motor racing. And she decided that she would take me um, to a sponsor who had been kind to us and allowed us to have his boat in Oman. And we went sailing for a week. And as it happened, the, the week of the Grand Prix, um, we were in Dubai. And uh, there was a whole lot of people there that I knew, which was, I remember Mark Knopfler at our Straits was playing in the middle of the square. Um, there was a tennis tournament with Henri Leconte and uh, various people um, playing uh, comedian tennis he's a lunatic anyway but anyway um and, and and so my time was fulfilled and then i had to say to him i didn't actually know because i was at sea the time of the grand prix i didn't know till the two days later the tuesday that Giancarlo carlo our driver had won the grand prix i was absolutely overjoyed i was sad that i hadn't been there to see it but i was glad because i didn't miss it so you're best known now as a pundit i suppose an analyst for the sport What's it like being on that side of the bargain? Do you get a better insight now into things and, and do you realize maybe there was things you were missing when you were right in the thick of it? I don't know why this is, but people tell me things and they probably shouldn't tell me them, but they like to tell me things. So it was easy for me to be able to say that Michael Schumacher was coming back and I could say which one he was going. Uh, it was easy for me to say that Lewis Hamilton was leaving McLaren uh, and going to Mercedes, well, that was easy because I was acting on behalf of the instructions of one Mr. Mr. Lauda. So he was in Mercedes and he couldn't go into the McLaren motorhome. So he used to send me in there to do all the discussions and talking or some of the discussions. I'm sure a lot of the really nitty gritty was done separately. But um, so these things that people give me sets of information, uh, like last week, three or four days before Mercedes came out with a black car. Uh, I knew they were painting it. And um, there's very small, tiny things to know about in advance because it doesn't matter. It's going to come out, so it's coming. Why bring it two or three days earlier? But, you know, some people think that that's part of good journalism, good broadcasting, good connections, good mm. good positioning within the team. And with Channel 4 and previously with BBC uh, and Whisper, I've been with David Coulthard now all of that time. And um, we just get on particularly well. Um, and I'm able to give David some of the stuff that he's able to use. Um, you know, he may not necessarily have known, but then he's hugely helpful to me in things that I wouldn't have known. So it works really well. He's a top person to work with. Did you ever get in trouble for 
breaking some of those stories? Were, were people annoyed at you, the powers that be? I think I think Ron Dennis barred me from the McLaren, but that was no big drama. If he thought there was a lot of pain in stopping me going into the, the Marlboro, into the McLaren motorhome, um, he probably did me a favor. I didn't want to go in the first place. But uh, no, that's not necessarily true. I bridged the gap with Ron. Um, and it's only now that I realize what an unbelievable influence he was to the team, how uh, dynamic, how committed, how how successful. Just think back in McLaren, what they achieved to where they are now. And maybe they're on the way back or whatever it is with Zach Brown. I have no idea. The, the jury is still out. They had a great result there for the first race uh, to get it on the podium. Young Nando Norris is a real talent. I love, I love watching him. Um, but we are very fortunate, I think, particularly those people if this program is for British uh, listeners. Um, you know, Lewis Hamilton, six times world champion. He will go down. We talked about earlier on, you talked about uh, the Prost and the Senna's and, and the Schumacher. But what we now realize and must realize that we have to include Lewis Hamilton into that very uh, honored group of people um, because he's that good. And um, will he win the seventh title? I have no doubt, having watched the first race, sure, Bottas uh, had the legs of him and he qualified better. But, you know, circumstances didn't play into his hand. For me, he's still the quickest in Formula One at this moment in time and probably will do so for a while. Uh, but, you know, I do notice, though, that his, his mind and his other activities are going off in different tangents. And I, I would urge him that... Before he leaves Formula One, please give him give it the full attention that it deserves, because we only really want to see him as another world champion. And um, the amount of things that uh, blur the mind or blur the head is very difficult to to put the mix all together to give him uh, the concentration levels that he needs to do, the talent that he's got. I just would like him to focus. Uh, on those things. Now, I'm sure he is, um, but maybe to the outside world, we see that he's diversified into all sorts of different other yeah. programs, either for himself, um, about um, the Black Lives Matter, for example, um, for his music, for his rapping, for his stuff in the LA, um, and, and how he gets around the planet. Um, but he has curtailed a lot of that. He's not flying as much as anything that he did do, and I think that's a very good positive. So let's see how all of those things that are involving his life at the moment, I think he's a miracle to be able to do what he's doing in a car and still yeah. look after all of those things is hugely complimentary to him. He's one of a kind. How's Absolutely. your music? Talking of music, how's your band? Uh, my band, there's not too many live gigs at the moment. The last couple <laughs> of things I did um, was uh, when I was locked down in Cape Town, uh, Mike Rutherford of Mike and the Mechanics and Genesis, um, yeah. Mike and I used to play every couple of nights um, for, we'd opened a veranda in his house because he lived quite close to the hospital. And eight o'clock at night, we would play a list of different songs and different tunes. Um, and it didn't really matter whether we played them particularly well. Of course, with Mike, of course, he played them well. But, you know, the, the thing was the people who would just, uh, even though we'd only play for 10, 15, 20 minutes, uh, they'd all stand up and clap and uh, have their lighters going or little, Flash lamps. Wow. It, it was it was a nice touch that I really enjoyed, and it was the closest I could do to live music at the time, which obviously I'm starved of as now, as you can rightly say. Yeah. But um, because it's 
very little form of adrenaline uh, that can surpass jumping on a stage and playing serious rock and roll with some really good players around you and hopefully you not embarrassing yourself too much. So that's, that's, that's probably my biggest passion is, is music. We ask everyone at the end of our podcast a series of kind of quick fire questions that we hope you sure. answer as honestly as possible. So I wonder, what would you be doing if, if you hadn't got involved in motorsport all those years ago? Uh, I'd probably be a retired bank manager off the west coast of Ireland somewhere, um, wondering what am I going to do with my next part of my life and uh, seven years into my retirement. So that's exactly what I'd have been doing. Doesn't sound too bad, to be honest. But this is probably uh, Doesn't sound too great either, let's be honest. <laughs> I think the world of... Uh, being bank managers these days has taken a, a big turn for the worse. But anyway, never mind. That's another story. What's your worst habit? Uh, it depends on who you speak to. Um, I, I, I'm probably quite annoying. And, and the people know that I'm, I know I'm annoying and um, it's something that I create. So that's probably just annoying people for the sake of it. It's probably my worst habit. What's the most impressive thing that you can cook? Oh, don't ask me that. Not very good. Um, uh, cooking is one thing, but I, I, I have to say I am particularly good at making salads um, and mixing everything and everything into it. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean cooking unless the meat of whatever it is, if I'm putting meat into it. Um, generally, I've probably gone off meat. Not, I'm not a vegetarian by any means or, or vegan or anything like that. I'm not like Lewis's dog, but, um, you know, Rufus, the poor dog, probably doesn't have any choice of the matter. He just eats <laughs> what he gets. But in my case, uh, my salads are my calling card. Okay, that's pretty good. You seem like you're in very good shape. You seem like you're a man who eats salads. I need to do more of that, maybe. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that. You know, everybody has their own thing. What I do have is... Um, um, kids grandkids yeah and, and they're hugely hugely important and july is traditionally a, um, a holiday time for for the jordan family it started off with the four kids and then just seems to be a tribe of grandkids and everybody is here and in and out of pool so i'm surprised that we got this free time without kids squalling and shouting and doctors being called for for emergencies and various things no <laughs> thankfully we've had very little of that this year but um uh, you know that's where i am at the moment we're talking about in good shape um, yeah. because of weather and because it gets very hot during the day I go cycling early in the morning and then obviously I do um, a Pilates class um, and what's also helpful is that my wife is lactose and gluten intolerant so most of the foods we have would have very very little sugar um, and very little lactose if anything and, um, and gluten free and so therefore it's very healthy living, I have to say. What are you most proud of in your career? Uh, but I, I'm not sure it's to do with motor racing because, you know, motor racing was something that was my job. And I remember Marie always saying to me, never bring your job home to us. For me, that's your job. Don't talk about it. Uh, and and uh, wherever we live or whatever, we, and, and ever. Um, I have never had a photograph of any description or a trophy or a winner's trophy here or a winner's trophy. I've never had one in the house and um, uh, never. And uh, it's just something that was me. Motor racing was a job. Um, yes, I loved it and it had a huge passion, but I never, I never brought it home. And um, 
what am I proud about? I'm proud that we're all still intact. I, I said to my wife a ridiculous thing the other day. You know, she said, after all this lockdown, she said, I'm 42 years married to you, Marie. And she said, yeah, isn't it ridiculous? And she said to me, you know, I've left it too late to leave you. And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm telling you now, I, if I had the chance, I'd buy another 42 years of you. Would she like that? But she knew that was pure bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> um, that's the way it is. So I think the family is probably the best thing that I have. Yeah, wonderful. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? I'd like to be better techno. I'd like to be able to put things together in terms of the technology, what I now see, computer skills and see what, yeah. you know, a friend of mine um, was just a genius in what he did in the tech world and how much money and how successful and how brilliant he is. You know, I just feel that I missed out on that. But then you can't have everything, you know. So I had my skills, which were in the commercial aspect of life, uh, both and financial and um, I hope that we brought pleasure to lots of different people, not just with the race team, with the music, uh, obviously cycling and friendships and, and family. For me, they, they, they were very important. And um, uh, it comes back to the same thing. I'm not sure anyone has been luckier than me because we're all still together. Touch wood, we've never had really any illness of real note inside the family. Uh, and we've had... Uh, no fatalities or anything like that with young kids. And you hear some horrific stories that are going out there um, for all sorts of reasons. And I just touched myself and I said, why can I, why am I so lucky? I mean, what is, what's, what's the story here? Well, it's wonderful to acknowledge it. What was the last piece of advice that you gave, Eddie? Well, I, I say that the one, you know, there's one word that, uh, and I come back to it again. And that is when people say to me, you know, what would I do? And I said, only do it if you completely and totally believe in it. But there's no point in 98 point. If you think it's 99.5% belief, then you can fail. Wow. You need to have 100% belief. You cannot have even the slightest doubt. And when you have that belief, and when it is 100%, then you will achieve anything you want to. And, um, you know, that's advice to young kids, particularly now it's difficult for them to get jobs. A lot of people have been laid off. There's a lot of tragedy out there. And we've, we know about the deaths and we know about the people, uh, the NHS and everyone who works so hard to keep the nation and the world alive. Um, you know, we need sometimes uh, somebody like Gates and people like that, great flat when they when they commit to the levels of money that these people have made and and what they give away is uh, honestly it's a it's a huge thought that we as a, a world we need to come together better we've seen that there is another life but the ocean is fresher cleaner the mountains are easier and it's nicer to go there there's no smog there's no density and there's no uh, you know there's a different life set and i'm not sure where we're going to go with this because i think the world is crying out for a change and i think that change needs to be that we need to protect this planet we need to give the planet back to um, our kids and their kids in a better condition than we had it some years ago and that should be a commitment absolutely that seems like the perfect note to end on a nice bit of future facing and a very positive message well, I won't be here for it, but I do hope that the world can fully grasp um, how they, the people, want to leave it to their children and their grandchildren. That's the key message I want to see, that uh, don't, 
don't take second best. Only the best will do and make sure that we achieve it. Absolutely. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's been wonderful to have you all the way from Spain as well. I'm very jealous. It's very grey here. Well, you shouldn't be. It's very steamy and very hot, particularly now that I've been speaking to you and I forgot to turn the aircon on. But anyway, that's another story. So bye-bye and thank you. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.